Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080. Light 100.5 WRCH and 96.5 TIC. We're speaking this morning with State House Speaker Matt Ritter. Good morning, Speaker. How are you? Good. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I want to look back kind of as a whole, looking back at the legislative session that we just went through over the last few months. And I think that one of the big things that everybody was focusing on, lawmakers and Connecticut residents alike, tax cuts and the state budget. Uh, We're looking at tax cuts of around $600 million, Democrats calling it historic, Republicans calling it not enough. They're saying it should have been over $1 billion in tax cuts. So in their view, something is missing, but Democrats don't have that position, right? Well, two things I'd say to that is, number one, we had two Republican state senators vote for the budget. So the fact that we were able to convince some people of the argument, I think, says something. Number two, the problem with the Republican plan was that it violates current federal law which they've acknowledged. What they have said to the state of Connecticut is we should file a lawsuit, which some other states have done, challenging Congress's authority to limit the amount of tax cuts that the state could have this year. Um, We felt that was a risky strategy with with no end in sight. Uh, It's probably going to be years for that to resolve. And just for the listening public, that rule from Congress is part of what the ARPA money that we received, right, which was federal dollars that the Biden administration sent to every state in the country. And, And for us, it was you know, billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. We just don't want to jeopardize that. And maybe in a couple of years, the Supreme Court rules that Congress exceeded its authority, but by then we'll be on to a next budget anyway. So I think we were really, we were constrained by federal law, but we're very proud of what we did. If you own a car in a high mill rate town, you're going to see a pretty significant reduction. In Hartford, that's about 13 mills less than you pay now. A child tax credit, we're going to be mailing checks to 600,000 uh, parents, uh, we believe, in the next, uh, sometime this fall. a kid for the first time in the history of the state of Connecticut since the federal government ended that program. You'll see an additional $100 in your property tax credit. You'll see gas prices uh, uh, continuing the gas tax cut till December. We're very proud of that budget, and I think that's why two Republican state senators voted for the budget, quite frankly. So initially, the gas tax holiday, let's focus on some of these one by one. So the gas tax holiday was originally April 1 to June 30th. Now it's been extended to December 1st, correct? Correct. And that's 25 cents a gallon. Correct. And some Republicans, and we, we had state Senate Minority Leader Kevin Kelly on the program, and he seems to suggest that there's some kind of election gimmick going on here with the December 1st date. How do you address that? I think the, the gimmick is voting no, because you're trying, to find a, you know, you're trying to find a reason to vote against the budget when reality is you probably should have voted for it. Um, but, it, you know, the reality, we have enough money in our special transportation fund to pay for it. And there, obviously, summertime is when there's a lot of driving, um, so gas prices will rise again. They typically do. The reason we chose December was two reasons. One, that's kind of where we could stop affording it under the current revenue projections for our transportation fund. And number two, we hope by then 
global markets have stabilized uh, and there's less driving in the winter season. So those are the hopes there. And, and look, if it comes to a situation where gas prices are still very, very high and the federal government hasn't sort of tried to address that, and we have the revenue in our transportation fund, we could revisit that issue again in December or before. So that would be a special session. Well, I mean, yes, you'd have to do a special session if you were going to do it, you know, for December and January or, uh, or December anyway. We're back in in January. Um, I mean, I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying, you know, at some point, if it gets really high, you're going to need federal government intervention potentially. Um, but there's just a lot of uncertainty. And when we found out we had the revenue in the fund, I think we all decided to go as far out as we could. And that actually was the cap on how much money we could go out. Otherwise, we might have gone out further, quite frankly. Previously, um, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal had been calling for a suspension of the federal gas tax, 18.4 cents per gallon. Um, Are the state lawmakers in touch with him or any other colleagues at the federal level on that issue? Is there anything new to report on that end? No, you'd, you'd have to ask, you know, Senator Blumenthal, members of Congress, about what they think the likelihood of that is. You know, we, we try to make our, our policies, you know, mindful of what may happen in Congress. But to say that Congress is unpredictable is like saying that the Red Sox are playing well right now. Your colleague, House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora, on the child tax credit issue, calls it one-sided, saying that people who may not have children uh, may not be eligible to get that kind of a break. Obviously, it's a child tax credit. But he is basically saying that's not as widespread of a credit as it could be. Yeah, I mean, that's true, right? But, but one of the things you look at when you're looking at tax cuts, right, is we were mindful of how effective that policy was when the federal government did it for the last couple of years. <laughs> so the, the fact that tax cut is not continuing, which goes back to my previous point, no one ever knows what Congress is going to do, um, is really disappointing. It, it lifted literally tens of thousands of people out of poverty. And so one of the goals was to make sure that parents – saw some of that benefit. It won't be as high, but some of that benefit to continue. The other thing is it addressed a major issue of the business community, which is making sure child care is affordable, uh, that their, their workers. So in this budget, not only do we provide the child tax credit to, to try to help people with high child care costs and inflation uh, of things like food and diapers, but also we put a lot of money in to pay more money to our early childhood educators and our preschool educators. Um, people will not be able to go back to work until they can find, you know, childcare and be able to afford it. So that was part of a double-pronged strategy in the budget. So, you know, you can, you can say you would have done something differently, but it was very intentional why we chose that tax credit. Let's talk a little bit about property taxes um, and, and also car taxes as well. 75 yep. towns in Connecticut, there are 169. 75 towns in the state are going to see a lower tax on cars because of the tax credit that was passed for, or the mill rate cap that was passed for vehicles. Could you talk a little bit to the tune of property tax cuts and also the car tax reduction? Yeah. The car tax is a little more straightforward, right? Because that will be, so take Hartford where I live, right? The state law right now caps motor vehicle taxes at 45 mills, and the city of Hartford has reimbursed the delta between its mill rate and that 45 number. Well, now the new law says you can't have a mill rate above 32 point, essentially 32.5. I think it's 32.46. And the city of Hartford and all towns with a mill rate above that number will receive money from the state to make themselves whole. So, you know, if you're paying your tax bill, like I will in June, I will see a couple hundred dollar reduction probably, like most Hartford residents um, on their cars. You know, the property tax credit, I have to say, I, I, I think that I don't, I think that might be the most, uh, you know, the one you'll see least. 
uh, or have most impact on individuals. It did expand the number of people eligible by a lot who will see a tax credit for the first time in years. Um, but that, again, is a write-off on your taxes. So I would acknowledge that you know, that one you might not see for a, a little while. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's a major priority, certainly for the governor and others. Um, and so, you know, it's part of a negotiation. But it's certainly not as direct, I would agree, uh, as a child tax credit or the car tax credit. And the car tax credit, what do you have to say to the other towns that aren't really going to be impacted by that, basically? Yeah, I mean, you have a lower mill rate, so you're already paying a lot less for your car, right? The, the argument behind this policy is that why would a Honda Civic in Hartford pay $400 more in property taxes or $300 more than a Honda Civic in a smaller town with a very low mill rate? So, yes, there's no question that, you know, you might argue there's some unfairness there, but if you're in one of these low mill rate towns below 32 um, you know, there's probably a, a, a more of a nexus between what you're paying on your car than what you are in a high mill rate town like Hartford or New Britain. This morning on Face Connecticut, we're chatting with State House Speaker Matt Ritter. State lawmakers are getting their first pay raise in over 20 years, basically putting it into the low 40s, call it a $12,000 raise. There is some agreement on both sides of the aisle that this will help prevent retirements, that this will boost retention and recruitment efforts. Is that true? What are your comments on that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's been 20 years, um, and my rule was set out pretty early in session. Uh, it was important to me that it be done on a bipartisan basis. There were Republican votes in the House. I believe there was one state senator who voted for it upstairs who was Republican. So, you know, there's some bipartisanship there, albeit smaller. Um, it's, just a, it's just a question of, of, at some point, you know, if you're going to find and attract people to serve in the legislature, you want to make sure it's a diverse group of persons, right? You want to have diversity of age, of gender, of race, of ethnicity, and of profession. And what you don't want to have is have really wealthy people uh, or people with only a handful of professions that can afford to do it, or maybe even really young people who can live off of that base salary. The goal is to try to get more people with diverse experience on all sides. And I think if you listen to the floor debate, you'll hear those comments. What, what the raise goes to is not going to, you know, is not going to make a lot of people uh, be able to not have a second job, quite frankly. I would expect the vast majority will continue to have a second job. Uh, but it does make it at least hopefully a little more appealing or optional. Uh, the reality is when we're in session, uh, whether you're the speaker or a freshman legislator, you're up there five days a week, right? That's the time demand. And no one's complaining or say feel bad for, for me or feel bad for this person. But I think at some point after 20 years, um, the, the raise that we did simply kept up with inflation, uh, to, to put it in perspective. Um, I'm sure there's some members of the public who, who, who don't love that outcome, uh, but I can tell you I have not received one email uh, opposed to it. I'm sure after I say that I'll get a bunch <laughs> on this, but I think people understand that uh, Connecticut's not enriching its legislators with this particular increase. Well, why did it take 20 years in the first place rather than something incremental over the last 20 years? It's going up $12,000, the base pay, from 28 to 40, uh, which again is below inflation. Inflation would have had it around 45. So it's a $12,000 increase. Uh, in base pay. Um, you, you, there are a little bit of stipends uh, you could get in addition to that, depending if you're a chair of a committee or something like that, but the base pay will be 40. Um, you know, I think in the bill we did exactly what you talked about. We tied the increases to, inflate, uh, to a, a, an inflationary index the same way we do minimum wage so that we don't have to revisit this every year or every two years, rather. You can't raise the salary in the middle of the term, but it becomes a political football and nobody wants to do it. Um, I was willing, uh, as well as some other, you know, brave people, to put put myself out there, and I sort of told the caucus, "Look, you can vote no, 
Uh, and we had some members who did vote no on the Democratic side. But if I, I'm going to put myself out there, put some of my credibility on the line for it, I think it's the right thing to do. And so if people don't like it, you can blame me. There were also other raises for state employees, 46,000 of them, the CBAC employees. Could you talk a little bit about that deal? Yeah, that, that deal is just really what the, the, the market demands right now, right? So someone said, some people said, we should vote no. Well, we have arbitration awards, uh, both at the state level. There was one earlier this year. Uh, and arbitrated awards going on all across the state of Connecticut in local towns. So ask Republican mayors or Democratic mayors or first selectmen, what are they seeing if they can't get to a deal with their local unions, whether it be teachers or firefighters, and what they're seeing in arbitration? Arbitration in the state, the award that we saw earlier was 3%. 3%. The one that we did was 2.5. So some people said, vote no, vote it down. Yeah, okay. It would then go to arbitration. And ultimately, we believe that an arbitrator would have said probably higher than 2.5. And that was one of the arguments. So first of all, a lot of these state employees, I mean, they, like everybody else, work very, very hard, some in very difficult conditions. Um, ask anybody if they wanted to be work, at, work as a prison guard in the height of COVID uh, or folks that work late night shifts on the highway. Um, you know, the, the, there are folks who really, you know, keep our state running and functioning. But they also, so beyond deserving of a pay increase, like many other workers across the state are, they also got a, a raise, frankly, which is in line with what you would have seen in an arbitration award and what you're seeing at the municipal level. Um, so it's a, and it's only a three-year deal. In my time in the legislature, most deals have been four years. Um, so quite frankly, it was a fair deal. And uh, again, you did have a Republican vote on the other side of the aisle. Uh, all these bills we talked about you know, convinced at least somebody on their side to vote for it. When we think about the tax cuts, tax credits, and also the raises that numerous people with the state have received in this 2020 legislative session, are they sustainable? And this is kind of a two-part question because you've got the cuts and you've got the raises on, on two different hands. But is this something that's sustainable going forward in future budgets? Yeah, I, and I, that's a great question because I've said this throughout the session, is that I was only going to support a budget that made responsible investments, okay? I've seen election year gimmicks. I was there when we sent 50 bucks, you know, to people when we had almost no money to do it. Uh, it was done 25 years ago with a Republican governor, right? The difference here is that we have a $3.3 billion rainy day fund. The difference here is that we're going to put $2.8 billion minimum into our pension fund at the end of this fiscal year. So when you talk about gimmicks, a gimmick is when you really are, you have no money and you're kind of making it up as you go because you have one good fiscal year. The tax cuts that we're doing, the spending that we're doing is, first of all, the spending is within the spending cap. There's no end around the state spending cap. So we're spending what we're allowed to spend under the state constitution. And the tax cuts are being done after, very important to remember, after the rainy day fund is at the $3.3 billion and these two, this almost $3 billion uh, pension payment is being made, which is prepaying long-term liabilities. We are prepaying, prepaying, not obligated to do so until the 2017 bipartisan budget, 12% of our outstanding pension liability. One year, 12%. This legislature didn't try to go spend it or go around the spending cap or, or break bond covenants or bond locks or state statutes. We held firm. So to me, I can tell the public and my constituents Yes, we made investments, but we did so responsibly. I got elected in 2010. The rainy day fund in the state of Connecticut was zero dollars. Let me repeat that. Zero. People go, that's not true. It had to be something more than zero. Oh, no, it was zero. It's now at $3.3 billion. That is the largest total dollar value in the history of the state. 
That is the largest total percentage of the annual budget in the history of the state. And we're prepaying 12% of our long-term liabilities. That's responsibility. I asked this of State Senate Republican Leader Kevin Kelly previously. So there were grumblings last year, maybe late summer, certainly throughout the fall, looking ahead to what has just passed as the legislative session, people wanting to know about tax cuts, trying to think about what to do, when to do it. And meanwhile, it passed. The budget did. So what took so long in planning this? Thank goodness we waited so long. We have to wait for revenue estimates. We don't really get accurate revenue estimates until after the, the tax filing, which is April 18th was the deadline this year. It was pushed back from the 15th to the 18th. So you really don't know. We're in a state like Connecticut where we have such wealth. And so the, the income tax and the capital gains are so much a part of our budget compared to maybe other states. You really don't know. So we didn't really know our numbers until about April 20th or so. And then we got it done within about 10 days of that, of that release. And thank goodness we didn't do a budget before that because we came into another billion dollars in revenue, which allowed us to cut taxes even further based upon the calculation the federal government gave us to comply with their rules, uh, as I talked about earlier. As a matter of fact, the Monday before we voted on the budget, we came into $400 million in extra revenue. Uh, all that will go into the pension fund by and large, but it shows you why we wait until after tax date. In the odd years, when we, do the, we go all the way till June, um, we have plenty of time to adopt the budget after that. In the even years, when we adjourn by state constitution the first Wednesday in May, it does get a little tight, but we have to respond to the federal tax date. That's why it takes so long. It's not because people aren't working hard. You want to know how much money you have. Shifting a little bit from taxes and budgets <laughs> over to electric vehicles, this is something that got a big push in this legislative session, um, the Connecticut Clean Air Act, uh, thinking yeah. about getting state buses electric, at least half of them by a certain point in time within the decade. So could you talk a little bit about efforts that were made regarding the climate? Yeah, we had a really good environmental session. Uh, the Clean Air Act, um, you know, the, we had a, a bill on pesticide use uh, that, that worked out well in the application thereof. The, we were requiring local boards to teach on climate change. Now it's optional. Um, you know, I think in Connecticut, I think it's a bipartisan thing. Our state is a beautiful place. Uh, we, we all value our parks, our outdoor spaces. Um, people who live on the shoreline have seen it with their own eyes. Uh, it doesn't know Republican or Democrat. If your, if your beach or your home is going to be taken over by rising tides and rising water, um, it's a concern to you. Connecticut, look, I, I do agree with one comment that, you know, people made up there, which is Connecticut cannot act in isolation. I agree. You know, what happens in Pennsylvania, what happens in Ohio it happens in China, certainly affects Connecticut, ultimately affects all of us. But you also can't just say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, you know, one step is one step closer to getting there. And if we continue to be a national leader with our New England states and California and others, you only, it's a matter of time before I think other states fall in line. Um, you know, this is, a, this is not going away. Climate change is real. I know there are some who want to deny it because it's easier to do so. Um, and at some point, if we're going to say that we believe in it, you have to take steps, even if you know that you're, you know, you're only making a small dent. If nobody did anything, there'd be no dent made. So we're proud to make a small dent, and we hope other states come on, come on board to make a much larger dent. And I was certainly listening to the debates on the electric vehicles and the buses and all of that um, debate, right? And there was bipartisan support. But one of the other concerns that I've heard from even lawmakers is that, are we ready yet? Are we going to be ready in 10 years for more electric vehicles and so forth? Is the infrastructure there? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a, a, a auto manufacturer, right? But I can tell you that uh, it's amazing to see what has changed, right? I mean, if you I was watching 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago, right? Volkswagen will soon be the number one seller of electric vehicles, right? It used to be electric vehicles were essentially Tesla, and that was it, right? and a couple others. Um, it seems like all manufacturers are making those changes. Um, so, yeah, I do think we'll be there. But, again, you need national leaders. You need Congress. You need the President of the United States to to really want to invest in this. And you've seen that commitment from the Biden administration, I believe, and I think that will make a difference. How about dealing with juvenile crime, another issue that got a lot of attention and a lot of press in the last few months, in the last year, the uptick in juvenile crime and, and trying to get juveniles away from crime rather than just incarcerated, but into something that prevents them from going down the path of crime. There was legislation passed on that. How did that go down? Yeah, you know, we had a bipartisan working group that met in the summer of 2021, and I think that laid the foundation for ultimately what was a bipartisan deal that, you know, some Democrats didn't like and some Republicans didn't like, actually. But, you know, you got to go beyond that, right? That bill in and of itself is not going to stop juvenile crime, uh, and it's not going to, uh, you know, be, be a, a panacea. It's the totality of what we did this session, and I think will help. So let's talk about that bill for a second that passed. It makes some common sense changes. You know, we had some parents coming to us saying, you know, we would like GPS monitoring. I know that's controversial, but that was what one of the families from Waterbury said would have made a difference, they thought. So that's in the bill. There's provisions in there that allow for, uh, an indiv- you know, depending on the crime, for, for longer sentences. Some, some crimes are very, very violent, uh, and you may need to hold somebody a little longer because of that. Um, so I think those changes, I think, will, will, will work out in a bipartisan way. But we also made massive investments in things like children for mental, mental health for children. We made massive investments in pre-K education. We made massive investments in after-school activities and boys and girls clubs and rec leagues and, and arts and music festivals. And, you know, again, I said after-school programming as well, because that matters too. Um, we're not going to just be able to arrest everybody out of the, arrest your way out of this. Uh, in many cases, most juveniles who go through the diversion program, there's about an 85% success rate where you don't see recidivism occurring uh, when they're a juvenile. But it's the other 15% that admittedly can be difficult to reach. So we're trying to find ways to make it, make some of the penalties a little tougher where, you know, traditional venues are not working, but also investments in the types of programs and services that most, the vast majority of children respond to. We're running out of time with State House Speaker Matt Ritter this morning on Face Connecticut, but kind of the last question I have. Is, all right, so the 2022 legislative session is now behind us, and coming up next, we've got next year, assuming there's no special session, there's going to be a session next year, and the longer session, as always happens with alternating years. So kind of what's next? I'm hearing from Republicans, they want to tackle accountability, figuring out transportation dollars. Um, there's legislation that didn't make it this year, such as the aid and dying bill. Um, mm-hmm. So what's what's next? What's the next goal? You know, it, it's hard to know because you got to see who gets elected to stuff, right? And, you know, you have a lot of races up and down the ballot. Um, and so I always say, you know, the, every session is like managing a baseball team. So you never know what who your lineup is going to be and who's going to be there. And so until you know who the players are, sometimes it's hard to draft an agenda. But um, obviously the budget, right, another biennium budget is going to be important. Uh, transportation is a really good one because the federal government has given us a massive infusion, um, and we have a lot of projects to fund in Connecticut. Uh, you mentioned aid and dying. You know, it's a bill I support but has remained 
elusive here in the state of Connecticut uh, because there's both Democratic and Republican opposition to that bill, admittedly. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I never want to, you know, roll stuff out. Um, issues will come up. And, and one thing I will also mention is, early, you know, continuing our easing our restrictions on voting in Connecticut. Uh, this November, you will see on the ballot a constitutional amendment, bipartisan vote in the legislature to allow for early voting. Um, and then next year, we hope to vote to allow no excuse absentee ballot voting. So that would go on the ballot in November of 24. So you'll see voting reforms on there as well. Um, but, you know, let's get through November and then we can certainly have plenty of time to chart a path and a course for 2023. State House Speaker Matt Ritter, we could keep talking about this for much longer, but we'll have to leave it here, okay? Thank you for joining us on Face Connecticut. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. State House Speaker Matt Ritter this morning on Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.